0: Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health
1: of all Texans. TMA has a
0: long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit texmed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today.
1: Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your health care attorney.
0: Hi there and welcome. Today we will be talking about physician-patient communication, focusing specifically on dealing with difficult patients and situations. In some ways, the manner in which a physician communicates information to a patient may be more important than the information being communicated. Obviously, the information is important and completely necessary. However, The approach, including the nonverbal and tonal components of the communication style, will either grab the patient's undivided attention or shut down their ability or willingness to really hear what is being said. Patients who listen and comprehend what their doctors are saying to them are more likely to acknowledge health problems, understand their treatment options, modify their behavior accordingly, and follow their medication and treatment schedules. Current research demonstrates the value of effective communication, and because of this, medical students and postgraduates are receiving instruction on techniques for listening, explaining, questioning, counseling, and motivating. In fact, 65% of medical schools now teach communication skills. Training in patient physician communication is also now objectively evaluated as a, score, a core competency in various accreditation settings including the Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Examination, USA Performance Evaluation, the United States Medical Licensing Examination, and the American Board of Medical Specialties Certification. The Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education recommends that physicians be competent in five key communication skills. One, listening effectively. Two, eliciting information using effective questioning skills. 3. Providing information using effective explanatory skills. 4. Counseling and educating patients. And 5. Making informed decisions based on patient information and preference. During the typical 15 or 20-minute patient-physician encounter, the physician makes nuanced choices regarding the words, questions, moments of silence, tones, and facial expressions he or she chooses. These choices can make or break the moment in general, but are particularly important in situations with difficult patients. So let's talk about a few key points for effective communication with patients in general to start with. One, we want to assess the patient's knowledge and expectations. Before providing information, find out what a patient already knows about his or her condition and what they are expecting to accomplish during the visit with you. It is not uncommon these days for patients to come to the physician with preconceived ideas and expectations about a condition, perhaps based on less than authoritative sources like Dr. Google, a friend down the street, or Aunt Betty. It is important, therefore, to determine what a patient already understands or misunderstands at the very beginning. Number two, assess what the patient wants to know. Not all patients want the same level of detail in the information offered about their condition or treatment. Patients can be categorized on a continuum of information-seeking behavior, from those who want very little information to those who want every detail. Thus, physicians will need to assess whether the patient wants or will be able to comprehend additional information. Adapting the information to the patient's desired level of information will improve comprehension and limit emotional distress. This is more challenging for the physician without advanced knowledge of the patient, but this level of need will emerge as the discussion unfolds and the physician attempts to synthesize and present information in a clear and understandable manner. Learning what the patient wants to know may require direct questions, strategic silences, and frequent verification that the information is being comprehended. One sign of whether the patient is understanding the information is the nature of the question they ask. If questions reflect comprehension of the information just presented then more information may be provided if requested. However, if questions reflect confusion it may be necessary to start from the beginning and choose a different approach to presenting the information. Do not assume that no questions mean the patient fully understands what you have said. If the patient has no questions or is obviously uncomfortable You should probably stop the conversation and ask specific questions so you can adjust accordingly. Be empathic. Empathy is a basic skill physicians should develop to help in recognizing the indirectly expressed emotions of their patients. These emotions need to be acknowledged and further explored during the patient-physician encounter. We should not ignore or minimize patient feelings with a redirected line of inquiry only focusing on quote-unquote real symptoms. Patient satisfaction is likely to be enhanced by physicians who acknowledge patients' expressed emotions. Not to mention, patients really do not comprehend all that you are telling them when they're emotionally distraught. All their energy and focus is inward. Number four, slow down and listen without interrupting. One study found that physicians typically wait only 23 seconds after a patient begins describing his or her chief complaint before interrupting and redirecting the discussion. This kind of premature redirection can lead to late arising concerns and missed opportunities to gather important data. And it can make patients feel like you don't respect what they have to say, that what they have to say is not important. Physicians who provide information in a slow and deliberate fashion allow time needed for patients to comprehend the new information allow time by pausing frequently and reinforcing silence with appropriate body language just to show that you're still engaged Uh, a slower delivery with appropriate pauses gives the listener time to formulate questions which the physician can then use to provide further bits of targeted information or clarify any misunderstanding as a side note Patient satisfaction is also greater when the length of the visit matches his or her pre-visit expectation. Even if the visit lasts less than 5 or 10 minutes, calm and relaxed speech elicits a feeling of time being taken. Rapid speech with frequent interruptions conveys to the patient that you have little time for them, which will certainly leave them feeling dissatisfied with the visit. In situations involving the delivery of bad news, Simply stating the news and pausing can be particularly helpful in ensuring that the patient and patient's family fully receive and understand the information. Allowing time for silence, tears, and questions is essential. And We're going to talk about uh, the delivery of bad news in a little more detail later. Number five, keep it simple. Keep to short statements and clear, simple explanations. It is wise to avoid the use of medical jargon, whenever possible, or industrial jargon, Uh, particularly with elderly patients. Keep in mind that in the United States, between 20 and 40% of individuals over the age of 60 may not have a high school diploma. Uh, Neither can we assume that patients of any age will understand treatment risks that are described with percentages or numbers. Therefore, physicians must take special care in outlining the relative risks Diagnostic procedures and treatments. Number six, tell the truth. It is important to be truthful. Although euphemisms may soften the blow of distressing information, they can be unnecessarily misleading and create confusion. It is important that physicians not minimize the impact of what they are trying to communicate. Saying that a patient has gone or has left us, for example, could be interpreted by an anxious family member as meaning that the patient has gone or left the hospital against medical advice. As difficult and blunt as it may seem, using the D words, dying, died, dead, when appropriate, to effectively communicate the circumstances and minimize the confusion is always best. Be hopeful. Wait a second. You just told me to be truthful. What if there is no hope? The need for truth-telling will always remain primary, and the therapeutic value of conveying hope in situations that may outwardly appear hopeless should not be underestimated. In the context of terminal illness and end-of-life care, hope for what is possible should not be discouraged. Even when physicians must convey a grim prognosis to a patient or family member, being able to offer some level of comfort and minimal suffering has real value. For instance, in situations such as the imminent death of a patient, hope can be conveyed to the family by assuring them that therapy can be effective in allaying pain and discomfort. This does not encourage false hope, but rather conveys appropriate expectations. Watch the patient's body language. Number eight, much of what is conveyed during a clinical encounter transpires through nonverbal communication. Images of body language and facial expressions will likely be remembered longer than any memory of spoken words. Be mindful of this, because patients are observing your body language as well. A patient may not remember your exact words, but they will remember the expression on your face. Patient's facial expressions are often good indicators of sadness, worry, or anxiety. Responding with appropriate concern to these nonverbal cues will likely result in a more productive discussion than strictly conveying information. At the very least, you will have a more satisfied patient who feels like you understand and care for them. Number nine, be prepared for a reaction. Most physicians quickly develop a sense for the various reactions and coping styles of patients. Preparation for a variety of reactions will keep you from feeling caught off guard, not knowing how to respond, or by responding badly. Some individuals will take almost any bad medical news in a non-emotional stoic manner. However, this should not be interpreted as a lack of patient concern or worry because these same individuals go on to exhibit distress in other ways that may not be desirable or healthy. At the other end of the emotional spectrum, patients with mild or diagnosable depression and or anxiety will often react to bad news with overt displays of crying, denial, or anger. Uh, Patients who have difficulty forming a trusting relationship with a physician may react to bad news with distrust, anger, or blame. Um, establishing a, a lasting bond of trust with their physicians can be very difficult. Regardless, all attempts to communicate should be made, understanding that unsettled feelings may still be present. So the first step is to recognize the type of response you're getting, allowing enough time for a full display of emotions, regardless of what they are. Most importantly, listen quietly and attentively to what the patient or family are saying. Perhaps you can encourage patients to express emotion, asking them to describe their feelings. Your body language, your body language, can convey empathic concern during these encounters, so pay attention to that. The patient-physician dialogue is not finished after discussing the diagnoses, tests, and treatments. For the patient, this is just the beginning. The news is sinking in. Even if the patient feels some relief with having a definitive diagnosis, for instance, you should anticipate a shift in the patient's sense of self and emotional experience as they uh, incorporate and process that information. Grieving and acceptance happen in stages according to the patient's personal timeline and with resolution unique to that person. Now, despite all your efforts to develop effective therapeutic communication with your patient's you will still encounter difficult situations with patients. How do I know this? Because surveys reveal that as many as 15% of patient physician counters are rated as quote-unquote difficult by the physicians involved. And we are dealing with human beings, of course. Bottom line, no physician can avoid the difficult clinical encounter from time to time. But having the tools to deal with these situations when they arise can result in a better experience for both you and your patient. The hostile, aggressive patient, the demanding patient, the know it all, the excessively anxious patient, and the incessant complainer are some of the folks that we need to know how to manage effectively. If we fail to handle these situations uh, appropriately, um, the patients can uh, potentially receive suboptimal care. They can grind patient flow to a halt and delay the, the care of, uh, of other patients. If the staff has to deal with a multitude of these patients on a given shift, there can be a sort of swarm-based escalation and frustration and and sometimes, unfortunately, a total breakdown of effective patient communication and care all the way around. So, if we know we are going to deal with difficult patient situations at some point, then it only makes sense to prepare for the potential conflict ahead of time. Patient characteristics that suggest the likelihood of difficult encounters include the presence of depressive or anxiety disorders, more somatic types of symptoms, and greater symptom severity. Not all difficult encounters can be blamed on the patient side of the interaction, however. Physician attitudes about care, fatigue, stress, and burnout can create circumstances in which physicians are just as or more responsible for the difficulties at times. It can be hard to have productive encounters when patients exhibit certain types of characteristics, no doubt. So here's how to identify them and respond appropriately the angry, defensive, frightened, or resistant patient. You see these patients, they have clenched fists, furrowed brows, wringing of the hands, restricted breathing patterns, and warnings from your office staff that something's wrong and uh, you should be careful and watch out. These are all uh, signs that you can identify these patients with. When you see these signs, try to uncover the source of difficulty for the patient and pay attention to the way his or her emotions relate to the medical issues at hand. Don't get drawn into a conflict. Instead, define your boundaries and recognize when your triggers are invoked, as this will help you to modulate your response to the situation and allow you to empathize with the patient. Use reflective statements like, I can understand why you might feel that way and and follow with the discussion about what it might take to resolve the situation. For example, a patient who is in pain and has been waiting for an hour because you have been tending to a hospital emergency might be quite angry when you finally get to the room. He may say, my time is as valuable as yours. I don't know, I don't understand why I had to wait so long. Um, and then your own sense of being harried and running late may trigger an angry or frustrating reaction from you. But simply taking a deep breath and offering a sincere apology would be a more constructive response than having your own meltdown. A statement such as, I can understand why you're upset, and I appreciate you waiting for me, uh, would go a long way toward easing patient's frustration. If you can say with confidence that you'll handle the situation differently next time, for instance, by instructing your office staff to tell your patients that you're running late, to offer alternatives to waiting, such as rescheduling, then tell the patient what you intend to do. If you sense that a patient is fearful about a diagnosis or treatment, Encouraging the patient to talk about it and assess whether the fear is appropriate in proportioned to the situation. This may help to establish a context for the fear, allowing the patient to deal with it more constructively and provide you with some guidance on how to um, uh, approach the patient further. Of course, if at any point during an encounter with an angry patient, you sense a potential harm for uh, to you or, or your staff, ask for assistance from law enforcement and remove Uh, other people away from harm's way as as well as you can. The manipulative patient. These patients often play on the guilt of others, threatening rage, legal action, or even suicide. They tend to exhibit impulsive behavior directed at obtaining what they want, and it is often difficult to to, uh, distinguish between borderline personality disorder and manipulative behavior. Um, No one likes to be manipulated it automatically puts us on the defensive. The keys to managing encounters with manipulative patients are to be aware of your own emotions, attempt to understand the patient's expectations, which in some cases may actually be reasonable, even if their actions are not, and realize that sometimes you have to say no. And it's appropriate to say no. The somatic patient. These patients present with a chronic course of multiple vague or exaggerated symptoms and often suffer from comorbid anxiety, depression, and or personality disorders. They have often doctor-shopped and likely have a history of multiple diagnostic tests. Keys to productive encounters with somatic patients include describing the patient's diagnosis with compassion and emphasizing that regularly scheduled visits with a primary physician will help to mitigate any concerns, Be sure to effectively manage any comorbid comorbid psychological conditions as well. It is important to refrain from suggesting that it's all in your head um, and avoid that cycle of vigorous diagnostic testing and referrals as well. You want to do both of those things. Um, Because to them, the, 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 the experience is real regardless of where the source of it comes from. The last thing you want to do is give in to the patient demands uh, for uh, testing and referrals and things of that nature in order to placate them. This will backfire and simply serve to reinforce the behavior. A strategy for communicating with a brand new somatic patient, new new to you, who has doctor-shopped in the past, might be to address the situation, the issue directly at the beginning of the encounter. For example, saying something like, I noticed that you have seen several physicians and have had extensive medical tests to try to uncover the cause of your symptoms. I recognize that these symptoms are a real difficulty for you, and I believe that these tests have ruled out any serious medical problems. I have another strategy to suggest that has worked well for patients of mine in similar situations. I would like to make a contract with you to see you every two to four weeks, often enough to see if there's anything truly new going on, something significant develops that has not already been worked up, we will do more tests. Uh, We will meet frequently enough to provide you some reassurance that we are not missing anything and we will avoid uncomfortable and costly tests and procedures unless they are clearly necessary. Excuse me. Grieving patients. Recognize the effect of grief on some patients' health requires familiarity with the normal stages of grief and the cultural context in which it occurs. You want to look for signs of depression and maladaptive behaviors that prevent progression through the normal grieving process and then treat those issues. Help grieving patients by validating their emotional experience and making sure they understand that grief is a process that takes varying degrees of time for different people. Encourage open communication, avoid inappropriate medication to suppress emotion, and caution against major lifestyle changes too early in the grieving process frequent flyers these patients may stand out due to the sheer bulk of their medical charts they may be lonely dependent or too afraid or embarrassed to ask the questions they really want answered they may also be patients with a large number of perfectly rational questions the quote-unquote worried well or simply patients who have been given misinformation that needs clarification so they're different, different uh, from somatic patients in that they're not continuously coming in or, co- or complaining about the same uh, issue or the same pain. They are frequently coming in for different reasons each time. The first step is to be product- uh, to, to a productive interaction is to identify the underlying reason for the frequent visits. Begin by acknowledging that you notice the pattern of frequent visits. And explain that you've seen other patients schedule frequent visits for different reasons, including concern about undiagnosed symptoms and a need for reassurance, uh, a need for relief from chronic pain, or, or a need to talk. Ask whether any of these reasons apply or whether the patient has other ideas as to the reasons for the frequent visits. Showing understanding of the patient's reasons often will foster an open discussion of the reasons behind the reasons contract with the patient for regularly scheduled return visits, and use patient education and support personnel as needed. So here are a few fallback techniques when you feel like you've exhausted all else. Number one, the broken record technique. Repeatedly validate the person's feelings until the situation is diffused. Ask, what is your biggest fear? Or, I can see you're upset. I can see why you would feel that way. You say these things a few times, by the second or third time, The patient will usually shift from being difficult to being cooperative. Number two, acting dumb. When being threatened or attacked, do not fight back. And I'm not talking about physically threatened or attacked. I'm talking about verbally. Ask clarifying questions to change the attack to clarification. You can say, pardon, or help me understand what you're saying, or I don't understand what you're trying to say. Help me understand. Even though you understand exactly what the patient is saying. Use non-confrontational body language during this exchange and, uh, and simply wait for them to get to a place where they're clarifying rather than attacking. Number three, silence. Give the person time to calm down. People will usually burn out sometime within 60 to 75 seconds of a good rant. Um, sometimes they just want you to listen. They just want to be heard. And then by the end of that silence, you simply say, I hear you and go from there. If all else fails... Take a time out. Take a break from the frustrating encounter if you feel you need it. It is important to take time to identify your own frustrations, anger, and countertransference. Think about a game plan before you re-enter the room and uh, engage the patient again. Now, sometimes we ask, is it me or is it them? So stated earlier, there are times when the issue lies with the physician. Physician, know thyself. That's a good rule of thumb. Meaning, attend to your own physical and mental processes as you see patients and remain aware of your own emotional baggage in the exam room in order to decrease the number and intensity of difficult encounters you experience. So I'd like to share a quote from Dr. William Osler's Equanimitus. Imperturbability means coolness and presence of mind under all circumstances. Calmness amid storm, clearness of judgment in moments of grave peril, immobility, impassiveness, or, to use an old and expressive word, phlegm. So here's some specific characteristics or situations a physician might struggle with that can contribute to different difficult encounters with patients. Angry or defensive physicians. Physicians who are burned out, stressed, generally frustrated, uh, over near-term crises or long-term concerns are more likely to react negatively to patients And not just those with characteristics that may contribute to a difficult encounter. That may be any patient. Recognizing our own trigger issues and knowing what personal baggage we bring into the exam room can be very, very valuable. Now, if we're fatigued or harried, most of us have been overworked, sleep-deprived, or generally busier than we needed to be at one time or another. Overcommitment is a closely related phenomenon that is all too common among high-achieving professionals. It is important that we are sensitive to the impact of physician fatigue on medical errors and patient safety and set reasonable limits for ourselves. Consider these strategies. Diplomatically bow out of commitments, delegate to others as appropriate, and seek work environments that value setting appropriate limits. Take care of yourself. Dogmatic or arrogant physicians, each of us has things we feel strongly about. Personal beliefs and values, as well as our beliefs and values about medical care, can lead us to overemphasize our own beliefs and emotions in ways that disempower patients or prevent them from providing us with adequate information about their care. Our own baggage may also prevent us from assessing that information without bias. Identify your trigger issues and avoid situations in which your beliefs may inappropriately close off adequate exchange of information and the shared decision-making that is so critical to a healthy patient-physician relationship. Sometimes difficult encounters have more to do with the circumstances surrounding the encounter than with the people involved. Um, So in those situations, you should be ready to address the following challenges when they arise. Literacy and language issues. You know, as the United States develops a more diverse population, Physicians increasingly find themselves needing to communicate with individuals whose primary language is different from their own. You want to try to allow extra time for these encounters. Whenever possible, work with a trained interpreter rather than trying to communicate through a patient's family or friends. Ensure that the interpreter translates everything that is said rather than editing the conversation. Direct your eyes and speech toward the patient rather than the interpreter, working across cultural Uh, or working across cultures requires sensitivity to different beliefs about health and illness, religious issues, gender issues. You may not be able to be fully culturally competent for all people, but your goal should be to remain culturally sensitive in all situations. Uh, Another situation you might encounter is multiple people in the exam room. As many as 16% of adult patients have a companion present during ambulatory medical appointments. This phenomenon requires thoughtful assessment of the situation and mindfulness of the patient's needs. So consider these issues. Does the patient want the other individual in the room for the history and the physical exam? Is there a need to talk with the patient alone? Will the third person be involved in healthcare decisions or are there cultural reasons for him or her to be present? Is there any evidence that the third person is forcing the patient to acquiesce to his or her presence? When patients have companions in the exam rooms, be sure to speak directly to the patient, avoid taking sides in any conflict that may arise between the patient and the other person, and evaluate all parties' understanding of the information and the treatment plan. Now, breaking bad news. You know, bad news is just a a part of, of our human experience at times. When it's necessary to give patients information that will be difficult for them to hear, preparation is critical know who will be present for the discussion, allow adequate time and privacy, and review the clinical situation. In the early stages of the encounter, assess what the patient already understands or believes about the situation and how much more information he or she wants. Disclose the news directly, allowing adequate response time for the patient and others in the room to experience their emotions and process the information. After giving the news, discuss the implications offer additional resources, agree on next steps, summarize the discussion and be certain to arrange for follow-up. Be direct and gentle. Summarize quickly what steps led to the death if that's what you're that's if that's the news you're breaking. Prepare the patient and family members for bad news. I'm afraid I have some bad news. You might want to say something like that. Don't use vague terms. Do not say I know how you feel as this might elicit a response such as, you have no idea how I feel. Um, Rather, say, uh, consider saying something like, I'm sorry for your loss. Environmental issues in general can play a part. Um, We often overlook that uh, surroundings may increase the likelihood of a difficult patient encounter. If the environment is noisy, chaotic, or doesn't afford appropriate privacy, patients, providers, and staff are all more likely to be unhappy or unpleasant. These factors can be alleviated with a bit of forethought. <clears throat> being aware of factors that contribute to difficult clinical encounters and being prepared to address them will go a long way toward preventing them or managing them when they do arise. But don't underestimate the positive difference that good interpersonal communication skills can make in these situations and other more typical encounters as well. For example, remain seated during the encounter, uh, practice active listening. Respond to the, oh, by the way, question instead of dismissing them and close the visit with a specific question, such as, do you have any questions about what we discussed today? Lastly, the noncompliant patient. These patients aren't rude, impatient, manipulative, aggressive, mad or somatic. From the outside, they just seem apathetic. These are perhaps the most difficult patients of all because they won't help us help them. These patients don't take their medications, don't eat properly, don't exercise or engage in other healthy behaviors. They may smoke, drink alcohol to excess, take illicit drugs, or even when they are starting to show signs of organ damage or issues related to unhealthy habits, they still continue them. They simply make poor lifestyle choices over and over again. And then we say to ourselves, why do we care? Why do we try so hard? They are adults, for crying out loud. Well, we care because... They are more likely to have negative outcomes as a result of their noncompliance, and we know that. Now, behaviors don't occur in a vacuum for no reason. Our patients don't wake up in the morning and say to themselves, I want to be unhealthy today. I'm going to skip my blood pressure medication and eat an entire bag of potato chips. But that is exactly what they end up doing. So the question is why? And that's what we need to find out. The point is, we can't assume that people don't care about their health. There are so many potential explanations for noncompliance, a lack of understanding or education, a lack of money, a lack of time, work pressure, home pressure, family pressure, you name it. You can't solve a problem until you know what the problem is. Once you have that information, you can develop a plan with the patient to mitigate those issues, thereby increasing compliance. Now, motivational interviewing is a useful technique for uh, eliciting the source of noncompliance, uh, bringing it to the surface to the patient's attention, and developing a plan of action with the patient, not for the patient. This type of discussion attempts to move a patient away from indecision or uncertainty towards finding motivation to make healthy decisions and accomplish their stated goals. And that last part is important. This relies on their motivation and their stated goals. It doesn't matter how much you want something for your patient if they don't want it for themselves. Furthermore, if the patient states they want something for themselves for their life, but then states they are unwilling to do what is necessary to get that something, then either they don't really want it, don't believe they can have it, or are afraid they will fail in trying to get it. Regardless, it always comes back to what they are willing to do for themselves, with you at their side to advise, guide, and educate them. Don't assume you know what the problem is. Ask them. Work with them. Now, if you have exhausted all efforts and it becomes clear in your judgment that the physician-patient relationship is not effective, not salvageable, that you can have no real impact on the patient's health, and truly believe that the patient would be better served by another physician provider, you may consider terminating the patient. So here's some some important points to remember about terminating the physician-patient relationship. Number one, exhaust other options first, including discussing your concerns with the patient. You never know. Maybe that will be the catalyst that the patient needs. Number two, ensure continuity of care. You do not want to be accused of patient abandonment. Provide care for a minimum of 30 days while the patient locates another physician to which care can be transferred. Documentation, number three, is key. Avoid opinions or commentary, simply document the facts. Number four, send a certified letter stating the date that care will end and keep that documentation as well. If you are terminating for drug seeking behavior, Double-check prescriptions, medication count, refill count to make sure that there is not a valid reason for what has occurred. Number six, handle these situations with dignity. Be mindful of your own emotions and frustrations as you communicate the decision to your patient. Number seven, sometimes a patient's situation or life circumstance changes. Be open to accepting the patient back if behaviors have changed. Lastly. Be mindful about turning difficult patients over to your partners. The point is not to get rid of a difficult patient. It is about the patient finding a physician-patient relationship that is effective and productive for them, for them both. That's all I have for you today. I thank you so much for your time and attention. Take care of yourselves. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you and ask that you like and follow for future episodes. Until then, stay well.
1: To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME.